Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Our guest today is Gary Hoberman. Gary is the CEO and founder of Oncork. Founded in 2017, Oncork provides a coalless enterprise application platform designed for customers in financial services, insurance, healthcare, government, and others. Prior to Oncork, Gary was the former CIO of MetLife and spent more than 20 years working in financial services. In today's episode, we discuss Gary's career path, how technology has changed within financial services enterprise, and how Oncork is empowering the COLAS revolution. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thanks for having me on here. It's always great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So maybe just to start with, can you maybe share with us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where did you come from and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I definitely lived in New York my whole life. Grew up in, in Queens, New York, public schools there. Uh, went to NYU, Stern School of Business, so stayed in New York City throughout throughout college and undergrad and entered the uh, the Wall Street world to create trading systems in about 1994. I know I'm dating myself now. God, almost almost 30 years, Zoe, but... I um I loved I've always loved technology. To me, it's it's magical what you could do with technology. And I always knew that that's where I was going to go into. And I wanted to apply that to to business and solving financial service. And there's nothing more n- that needs it most than Wall Street. And I love that excitement of building trading systems. And in '94, I worked for Bankers Trust, and they they were I was a, I was a kid, and they were like. We want you to build this money transfer screen and and store the data here in Sybase and all these great technologies and and I looked at it and I said you know if I I could do it differently what would I do I would probably create a system that creates the screen and I created the first code generator back in '94 which within six months every single transaction every trade was going through my software and when I left that in '96 to join Smith Barney another amazing financial service company on Wall Street. Um, you know, I had seen how the code that I had created and generated through this technology, you know, how easy it was to produce and how difficult it was to support. And they had to replace me with like seven engineers when I left Bankers Trust. And I joined Smith Barney in 96, loved it. I was in mutual fund sales and performance. Um, my my life was what was called critical path, but my life was basically worrying whether or not trading will come up in the morning and whether we send the right prices of the funds to the street. And in those days, it was paper, right? It was newspapers, so you had to get it in by a certain time. Um, spent 16 years at City from Smith Barney, Solomon Smith Barney through City. Uh, went from you know funds to wealth management to global transaction services through um, when OCC entered our lives during the last recession. It was, it was uh, my role to kind of help fix and re-engineer the company. And I had six patents in production and running, uh, powering Wall Street, which was a fun place to be. And uh, and then left left City for um, what I would call the fast pace, and I'm saying that sarcastically, but exciting world of insurance, where a city exec called me up and said, need some help here at MetLife, Fortune 50 company. And I joined them as their global CIO. And uh, there I had 10,000 engineers working for me overnight and um, and you know spending billions a year in technology. And it was exciting. It was C-suite. It was corporate jet. It was meeting the CEOs of all the biggest large cap companies. And and then I left that world in 2017. I like to say I jumped out of that C-suite and corporate jet uh, because I had seen a need that was missing in technology. And that's when Uncork was born. And Uncork is 
is the first 100% codeless platform to design and built for mission critical systems and applications. And it's what, throughout my entire 20, 25 years on Wall Street, it was what's been missing. And um, it's amazing to basically be able to create something that you see and, and know and feel. That's fascinating. FinTech has been really hard over the last like uh, five to 10 years, but you're definitely like a pioneer in terms of using technology to power financial services. I guess when all people call that Wall Street bug, um, they tend to go on to the investment side. Curious, like why did you choose to kind of focus on yourself like on a technology side? So you know what's interesting is I always say you have to find out what's your special skill, what's your superpower, like what's the and and that's your leverage of how you're going to succeed in the world and and like when you think through that, my superpower was speaking to machines. I was like one of the best at speaking to a machine in any language. And I, when I graduated college, I was working in four different languages at the same time across four different companies, and I loved every aspect of it. But most importantly, once you have that ability, to me, it was how do you learn and grow? And, and in Wall Street, what I set out to do was to learn the business. So I always wanted to remain in the technical track. Some people said, oh, I'm going to go to the business. But my goal was to learn the business, the operations, the trade exceptions, trade management, OMS, the order management system, or TMS, trade management system, and, and understand it inside out. And I would say as good or better than the business, simply so I could design software to help them move forward and not back. And I think when you think of fintech and finance, that excitement where I remember Zoe, I was 22 and I made, I, there was a, there was a bug in my code and I will be the first to admit it. And like, I remember we sent out an extra $64 million money transfer, like because of that bug and we got it back. We had to find it, but like you, you see very quickly how critical software is to empower the business. And it's not just technology, but you see the mistakes in human. I remember there was a trader who accidentally put a little squiggly because they were doodling and, and we bought, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of a trade we shouldn't have bought. Um, and that's where like technologies will fix it. And you know, when you think about what that could be, it's just it's just an exciting place to be. Definitely finance and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I guess also like what has changed from your perspective? Like you said, um, I, I'm a history major, so I'm so super fascinated about like how the society or like how we operate changes over time. So what has changed from your perspective uh, over the last like 30 years from like enterprise solutions angle? What has been the same or like what has changed the most from your perspective? So it's, um, so I'm going to give you like what I used to see was I would run the trading system on a server under my desk. Like the janitor would accidentally kick out the plug and, you know, he would take down trading. Like that was where we, this was 30 years ago. It's a bad thing. Yes, there's no controls. Let's move it to a data room and let's move it to the data room. And now we've got all the servers wrapped in one room and there's each of the floors has its own data room. And, and you suddenly realize that a few people were playing Doom or Quake or whatever the game might have been. And they took down the data room, which happened actually. Um, and then, so you, you take the data rooms and you now consolidate them into data centers. And then you have these massive data centers and there's data center migration projects and data center upgrades. But if you walk into a data center, every machine in that data center is uh, still flight. They're unique. They're new. They're a unicorn. Each one of those has their own attributes, nothing in common. So when you would get a call saying your app went down and they're like, oh, the motherboard went down or the CPU or the memory, you had to wait for the part to come back in stock. 
and like you so then you'd have backups of backups and you'd and so I'm walking you through like an infrastructure view of the world that I've seen change. And when cloud computing, I was there at the earliest days when when Jeff Bezos and Verda Vogel from Amazon presented to City this new concept of what wasn't called cloud, but was virtualization hosted for virtualization. And when you started to see that abstraction occur, it was amazing because you could see now so all of a sudden, wait, you don't have to worry about the part. Like you're just simply saying, I need compute and I get compute, I need storage and I get storage and I need security. And and now, well, they, Amazon could secure it better than we can and Amazon could do it at scale and Amazon can buy them. Like, And suddenly it was the aha moment, probably 2007, 2008 to say, like, we shouldn't be in the data center business. Like, why are we even in this business? Where's the advantage to us? And, and that we've seen that play out now, even though adoption of cloud is still so low, 10% or whatever the numbers might be, we've seen it play out where infrastructure has scaled and showed that infrastructure could be designed as data. Really, you could do data, describe your infrastructure needs, and it stands up and, and instantiates it. What I didn't see happen and why I created Narcoric was that same scaling in applications. So, so if you and I are both in the mutual fund sales and performance team inside of any wealth manager you might name, like you might be building the um, expert evaluation system to say how well a fund is performing. And I might be building the evaluation system to say how well your history is performed in your portfolio. And maybe I'm also building a managed account system. And so the reality is those three different business cases in the same division at the application level, even if they share the same infrastructure, even if they're all on either Amazon or Google or Microsoft, those three applications are literally servers under the desk. It's back to the days of that janitor kicking the plug. And each of those three applications has nothing in common with each other at the application level. Each of those applications is designed such that if you you know run a security test or cyber test or pen test or a functional test, and you find something, you're like, oh my God, there's a new vulnerability that was found today. You won't tell me. You won't like my app won't improve, so I won't find it until I run my vulnerability test by next six months. And there's nothing in common. So, what I had seen was this great scale in the infrastructure. You could see the same thing with security scaling with Okta and OAuth and others, and then you could say the same thing with analytics scaling with Snowflake and others. And the applications that are the most important thing. I mean, infrastructure has no meaning without applications. Zero. The applications, which is, you know, in City, there was eight thousand enterprise apps in our group. In there was, you know, ten thousand apps in our group, and like those applications, each individual had no scale, had no no commonality, and that was where um, I saw this, you know, ability to say, what we need to move it up the level. Like cloud can't stop at infrastructure. We need to be the next big thing, which is applications. And that's where we've got to fix it and solve it. And and that's what really the excitement is in FinTech and why we drove to create Encore. That's super exciting. My question is like how, what like kind of motivated you and like made you realize you need a kind of like the cloud moment for application was like a specific moment uh, for you or it was just like through observation? Oh, it was definitely a specific moment. And I, I remember the, the aha moment, as I would call it. So it was... Um, 80% of my budget, every year we'd sit down and we, if you were my business partner, we'd say, oh, you're the CEO and let's sit down and plan for next year. And I would say, by the way, 80% of the spend, so a billion dollars, let's just say, is set aside. You, the business CEO, 
you, you you can't change it. It's that money is just to keep the lights on. It's to keep the lights on everything that you asked for before. Every single change in software and everything you've done before and everything we've done in the past, the legacy, let's call it, is costing 80% of your budget to just keep it running today. And that's the application. It's not even the infrastructure. That's just the application. So, so the aha moment was that set aside, fine. The 20%, which is still a big number, a couple hundred million a year we could spend in building new. So let's create something amazing. And the reality is, you know, statistically, 90% of those projects don't succeed in generating the value that they set out to. That's data that you could look up from any research group. And the problem I had, the aha moment was the second something would go live, whether it's a package software, whether it's a low-code, no-code software, which we'll talk more about, or whether it was custom code, the second it would go live, I would get a report from my team of the technical debt we just introduced in our environment. And they would say, here's like what we just did. Here's like, by the way, yes, we're live. Congratulations. And by the way, we're now running COBOL and Assembler. And we're now running this. We had a, there was a problem. So we had to, you know, give an ability to use Excel and upload Excel. And, and it was a, a backdoor process and, and it's a risk in compliance. And suddenly you realize every single thing new we were building every investment we are making in the future for the shareholders, for the customers, for the company, for the employees, every single thing new we were building in technology was putting the company worse off in the future. And it's that mindset. And if you ask, so if you ask an engineer, hey, you want to create software? They'll say, yes. Hey, you want to code it? Yes, of course. I want to create it. You ask a CIO and they're going to say, I've got to live with that. And they ask the business, the business can say, well, where's all my money going? Where's all my investment going? I'm, I'm generating revenue and you're spending it keep the lights on and where's so it said value play was the aha moment that was the big moment and then when you had that moment i guess when you start start to like thinking about uh starting on cork how does on really help the business with this um kind of big problem and as you explain i'm certain like all the enterprise in the financial services space have this kind of problem yeah so when you look at this problem what i looked at it was the word language and what I mean by that is, you know, we call it coding. Coding, you know, when you say every, there's a shortage of coders or, you know, let's do an hour of code, you know, in school or it's, it's learn programming or computer science. Really what coding is, is it's a language. And there's been 9,000 different languages created since we started communicating with machines. Only 50 of those, so 99.99% of those have gone extinct, like ancient Greek. And the truth is I say ancient Greek because if I showed you java code and you didn't know how to program it would look like ancient greek to you you know public class static final track and it doesn't make any sense and and so so the the issue i had and why i saw 80 percent of the spend keeping the lights on and why 20 percent of the investment was failing and driving us backwards instead of forwards the issue i saw was language it was language was used by the business to tell me what they needed, the requirements. Language was used by IT to tell the business what they think they understood and said. And then most importantly, language was used by technology to program what the business needed. And it's never a single language. It's not like, let's just use one language, Java. Most people know that word. It's normally like just even a simple contact us page might take five different languages. It might take HTML and JavaScript and Java and DDL, and you're going to have your middleware API tier and your database tier. And, and each of those then ran in their own runtime. And so what was different about when we created on Quark was we said, we're going to eliminate language. And this is the biggest thing that we said is we originally said no code, meaning no language. 
And what that meant was, in a way, when you think of software, it's breaking the software into data. Like literally, um, so in DNA sequencing software is what we did. We said, what is a presentation? What is the data storage? What's the integration? What are all the components needed to create software? And we DNA sequenced that into data and we opened it as a standard and said, you, Zoe, could now describe, I need a contact us page. It's got a first name and a last name and an email address. And, and that data, which is now democratized, meaning you, and you don't need 10,000 hours of programming experience in Java, you could now create data to describe what you need. And there are two things now what we did with Alcor. So that was our goal. And so our goal was to eliminate language in technology. And that's absolutely what we've done. We then created a visual no-code tool that allows anyone to now drag and drop and create that data. So instead of having to open up an editor and create code, you could just drag and drop and create that data for the most complex applications. And then what we most importantly created is the missing runtime, the, the infrastructure layer that's been missing, which is sitting above the cloud. And it's this layer that basically is the application runtime. As I described the cloud runtime, it's the application runtime that takes in this data and can now render your experience into a mobile or a desktop or a tablet or, or an API and basically takes your data to life. And that was what we set out to do when we created our Quark was to replace language. So, so our view of the world and your listeners, what I would challenge them is to say what percent of their business is language-based today. And I would bet 99.99% of what's running their business today is language-based software. And we are the only one today that's in a data-driven world, data-defined world. One question coming out of me, just kind of like based on my understanding of the world is, I'm sure there are still coders somewhere kind of making sure all these great business ideas are coming to implementation. As you mentioned, like it's kind of a constantly evolving space with language. So going into the future, if we are like, if we see more involvement, how do you see that problem getting solved? Say like, I have all these wonderful, like modularized business ideas, but my, the language is constantly evolving. Do you see like your engineers, like being the one kind of making sure all like the migration or like transitions are happening smoothly? So great question. So first off, from a transition point of view, be, the reason why we said no language, no code codeless as we define it and that's the category we created the reason why was because if we don't generate any code or language and we don't let you inject any code or language which is very unique and different um and zoe the best example is excel every one of your listeners we use excel excel is technically you know codeless up until you write a macro and then you basically wrote code and that's where, and the thing about that is if you ever wrote a macro and tried to upgrade Excel, you'll know what I'm about to tell you, which is the software upgrade path, the idea of upgrading your software, whether it's, you know, high code like Java or whether it's a package software like an ERP or CRM and out there, the upgrade path is painful from everyone. And not just the upgrade path, but like, I got to keep it up to date. There's a security patch. It's end of life. I've got a new features are coming. How do I get advantage of those new features? So our goal was eliminating language meant we were confident that when we deployed a feature upgrade or a patch or security patch for Uncork, we were able to do it without impacting your business logic and your application. So imagine swapping out the engine. So you're, 
your application is running on how fast it's a car. So, you know, it's a Ferrari. We just replaced the engine and put in a Lamborghini engine. We just replaced the engine again and put in, you know, a, a Tesla Roadster engine. And you're continually getting upgrades in this environment without your application one going down, without you spending a cent, without you knowing it's occurred, without your business knowing it occurred, without your technology team knowing all that's happening. So we've done just from the data point of view, we've done 320 upgrades to date across all customers because all customers run on the same environment. And that's probably the biggest difference is if all customers run on the same code base, everyone's sharing the same code base for the first time. When you run your penetration test and ethical hack and vulnerability assessment on your you know wealth management application, it's your CRM, and I do it on my evaluation system and mutual fund system, we're all testing the same software. So if you found a vulnerability when you ran it, we patch it across all customers in one shot. When I run it the next day, it won't be found. It won't already have been fixed. And if you run your testing and find there's some performance tuning and fix it, you fixed all customers. And that that idea of scale is what cloud has done at the infrastructure level, what Snowflake has done at the data level. We've done it across the application level, which is a trillion dollars a year of spend going into that space. And that's what's very unique. And so so where will engineers be? Engineers will be using Encore to create this data definition. And an engineer sitting alongside the business, and we call it business-led IT, is the future model to create software. And they're still going to be using software to do that. They still need a logical mindset. They still need a procedural mindset, no question. And those are the best. But Suddenly, they could allow the business to create things instead of just defining requirements. The business could jump in and actually own something and create something without risk and change. You're just painting like a fascinating world for me who actually cannot code, but would be love to kind of build something and then own something from like a business standpoint. Um, I guess one concept that is kind of fascinating me when I was doing the research about Uncork is the concept of coalesce, which you just mentioned. What is really the difference between no code versus codeless, because we all know there has been kind of a no-code revolution happening in the last couple of years. Yeah, and so, and it's a great, great question. And so when you think about low-code, no-code, and that's a category that's been created, and it's the number of companies we hear saying, we have a, you know, RFP going on for low-code, no-code tool, you know, we want you to participate, and we're kind of backing off and saying, like, you should not have a strategy for low-code, no-code. Like, and the reason why I said it, Zoe, is low-code, no-code, is a tool. It's just a tool. And in all cases, because I've tried them all as CIO, in every single case, these tools generate code. So they do what I did 1994. They Each of these tools generates code to get you faster to market and speedier time to market. They focus on delivery and speed. And so um, many of these tools, let's say a CRM tool might get you 70% there. And then 30%, you're going to code using their custom language, which you have to learn and understand. And our view of the world is the second you wrote one line of code or the second they generated one line of code, you failed. You're back to the state of 80% of your spend is going to go to keep that code running. It doesn't matter if it was generated by a machine, AI, generated by a person, generated by 70% was automated and 30% was manual. The reality is it's a language-based view of the world. All low-code, no-code tools are language-based. And being language-based means 
every single application you build in those tools and frameworks are going to be snowflakes. Each one is going to be unique in what it is. Like a, it's going to be the server running under the janitor's desk. It's going to be the someone's going to kick that plug and you're going to say, what just happened? But there's no one going to be able to look behind the scenes and see what happened. They're not going to understand it. And that's, that's why we created Codeless. So, you know, you know, leaving the startup, leaving the corporate world after all that time and then creating a startup is definitely challenging, but creating a startup at a category, which is Codeless, is what we've done. And that's, that's the exciting piece. And we see it. Um, Codeless means we on Cork own your technical debt, your vulnerabilities, your, your end of life issues, your features. Like you could imagine if you built uh, a new, let's say we built a new trading application for maybe elementary school kids and you and I built it and you were, you're like, Hey, you got this great idea for a startup. Let's build this. When you build it on Cork, it's going to be as secure as a Goldman Sachs trading system day one with all the compliance needs built in around it. So, so we, this, uh, let's, I picture it like a bubble around your application, that bubble, which provides the application. You're in the same bubble as Goldman Sachs and state street and Marsh and others and city of New York and the federal government now. And that bubble, which is protecting your application for the first time, this layer runtime, when you think about it, it has all the features you need and has all the compliance. So, you know, SOC 2, Type 2, Privacy Shield, GDPR compliant, Privacy 2020, FedRAMP certification, HIPAA compliance, WARM compliance, ISO, all those, you know, with, with ADA compliance, with multi-language, multi-currency, everything I just described we're normally the afterthoughts. It's like, oh, we built something great. Now we got to go live. Oh, wait, is it HIPAA compliant because it's healthcare? Or is it, you know, FinTech? Oh, we've got to be, you know, with the worm compliance for regulators, write once, read many compliance. And so imagine we on Cork are responsible for that layer. We're the ones maintaining it. And every time we add a new compliance layer or credential, your application doesn't even need to know it's already compliant. That's kind of the future we see of technology, which is extremely different from the 30 years past that we've been in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess on that note, just wondering like any specific use cases that is kind of commonly used by like enterprise or like what is kind of your wedge? Yeah, so we, we always are facing skepticism because if you're a technology team, you've been doing this way for 30 years and we are brand new. We're also facing skepticism in that our competitors and our, our three largest competitors, Salesforce, uh, sorry, Microsoft, Salesforce, ServiceNow, in that order, are normally incumbents already in each of our customers. And so we're always, we've got like, it's a new way of doing things and we've already done it before and we've got the software here. So our wedge, Zoe, is always, um, we'll prove it or work. Give us a use case. Give us something meaningful. Give us something which no one has done before. Our first customer Liberty Mutual gave us something which Oracle tried for seven years and couldn't get done. We did it in seven weeks. Um, use cases in financial services would be everything from client onboarding, whether it's institutional or retail or wealth management, whether it's you know in high net worth that could be consumer. Um, it could be client servicing, so loans, taking loan, taking withdrawal, deposits. All of those are things we've already done before. Uh, it could be within financial services automation. So operational automation, let's actually get straight through processing, let's do trade exceptions, trade reporting, let's do collateral management, collateral matching, all built in. And um, and it could be where the desktop, the customer sees the portal, the end user portal, the customer logs into. And 
the, the beauty of Uncorked so is you never know where you exist. It's amazing to hear like Oracle tried it for seven years and you guys were managed be able to manage to do it in seven weeks. Should I be afraid as an engineer, like in this future world where Uncork becomes like the main engine, like the Amazon um, Amazon cloud, of, like of the applications? If I'm a software, do you, a software engineer, do do you think there's a place for me within the financial services institutions, or I should just be like focusing on working for Uncork? So, so it's funny. I I think as an engineer, like you should be afraid of what they're saying about generative AI simply because like the statements even today are in five years, you won't need programmers because 40% of the code checked into Git today is generated by AI. That scares the hell out of me. That's back to these days of like, like it doesn't matter like if a machine writes the code or if you write the code as an engineer, that code has to be supported, secured, maintained, and it's still like that server under the janitor kicks the plug. So to me, it's like, how do we how do we focus on software engineering? So to me, what we do for an engineer and on Cork is we train them and we have certifications and we have uh, different levels of certifications they could get in. About 15,000 people have gone through it so far at the training certification, but we train them how to basically use on Cork to do 90% of the heavy lifting they've done today. So they could take their special skills, maybe that 10% of their skills and apply it in areas maybe we, we don't do today. Maybe it's a Monte Carlo simulation, maybe it's an AI model, and let them actually embed their AI in their solution. But imagine where 90% of it is done by Uncork. And, and I always love, Zoe, there's this uh, picture, this um, the programmer, she says, I just spent four years in computer science at Stanford, graduated, and I've spent the last two days moving a button around the screen. Like, that's the reality. I hate to say, but like, if you hear a bank has 50,000 engineers, they're moving buttons around the screen. Like, imagine the world where you could free those engineers. So I don't, we don't have a shortage of engineers. I'm going to say it right. Like, and that's against everything everyone's saying. We, we need the engineers to be more productive and to be more productive. Like we give you the ability to use data to define your software versus language and you're more productive, but you're still an engineer. You're still creating something beautiful and magical. And now is kind of one of the leaders in like the codeless revolution, as you guys define it. Um, like from your perspective as the founder, what are some like challenges you kind of foresee happening, and then what are the things you didn't see like happened, uh, and then how did you kind of overcome those challenges? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've had when you think about creating a startup these days, um, and it was um, we've seen everything. Sorry. So everything from when you think about a pandemic, you know lockdown um through um through the market conditions where we are today and you know the thing is i've lived my whole life through recessions and the, the good times bad times mostly bad times in financial services so we built an amazing company we built a company that was always focused on um value-based growth not grow at all costs and that's critical for us we built a company where we had to top talent, you know, and the, the, the talent is engaged and happy customers is their goal. But when you think about it from a market perspective, we also built a company that's diversified. So we started in insurance and a year later, we had Goldman Sachs in banking as our first banking customer. We expanded a year later into healthcare where we have CBS and we have Amani's Medical Center as both provider payer side of healthcare. And then a year later, we expanded really rapidly in public sector. And, you know, it's one of my favorite stories of when the pandemic hit, you know, we were remote first right away. We were set up for it. We're like, everyone's remote first. 
we went from 180 employees to almost 700 in two years during the pandemic. And, and it's a huge growth spurt. And we did that because we saw the needs in, in public sector and state and local government. And we were uh, powering New York City's responses in Washington, D.C.'s COVID responses, Illinois, uh, you could just name the city, the state. And they all basically had a need for, um, and New York City was the best. March 5th, 2020, on a Friday, they basically said, COVID's coming to New York City hard. How quick can uncork the out contact tracing system for 311 and for every single 20 million tri state resident? And we built it with them over the weekend. It went live. I mean, we were the next week after all the pen tests were done and performance tests and load tests, we were live in production for everyone in New York City to track COVID. And we were. And like like to me, that's the the magic of that. And so diversification of our portfolio was critical. And um, not just in state and local, but now with the federal government, with uh, we have oil and gas sector, energy sector now as well. And, um, and so it's a platform. So to me, it, it is understanding where you play. Now, with that said, majority of our revenue is coming from capital markets, banks, asset managers, uh, financial services. And um, if we add insurance into the mix, that's majority of it. Well, everything we do is in those spaces there. Yeah. I mean, in this market environment, as you mentioned, like now a lot of, as you know, a lot of our like listeners are founders as well, and they're trying to balance betraying like capital efficiency versus growth. Um, how do you kind of make that balance yourself? As you as you mentioned, you want to diversify your portfolio, but at the same time, you want to use like the value-based growth approach to make sure like the organization is growing like healthily. Yeah, to me, it's uh, it's business decisions. And um, typically the CEO, the founders know best and your instinct is is typically right in what I say. And what I mean by that so is we are, um, we double down in R&D spend during this time. We see this as an opportunity where our product will be the is and will continue to be the revolution in Codeless and it will be the future of all technology and we're doubling down on that and that's where we see the investment to go. And we are continuing to invest significantly on the features and functions to make sure that happens with, with some exciting announcements coming just even later this summer. And, um, and so with that, it's deciding where do you want to focus for your business and I believe every technologist and every CEO and entrepreneur in fintech and every business owner need to do a mark-to-market on what they're doing today. They need to do a mark-to-market on every technology spend, every investment, and step back and be very critical as to what's the value we achieve from that. And use value as the metric. Use value. Don't use on time and on budget, which mean nothing. It means abs- it's the only things we measure typically in technology, on time and on budget, which Actually, when you think about it, it, has no value at all. It's been super fascinating to speak with you, Gary. Just to close up, we, as our tradition, we're going to ask you a couple lightning round questions. Um, so the challenge here is to answer with the shortest response uh, as you possibly can. Um, first question is, what advice do you have for someone wanting to be a builder in fintech? If you're building a, a fintech startup, start building it on a quark because you're going to get the base of a Goldman Sachs trading system and you know State Street and York State and others, and and start with there where you don't have to worry about the technology and the compliance and needs. But you know, most importantly, start with something complex. Start with something which don't solve the simple things. Don't you know solve the complex things first so the simple things are easy. And that's that's exactly what we did when we created our quark. 
I love it. Uh, what is something about you that most people find surprising? So if you asked me when I was probably, you know, high school days, even early college days, what I was going to be, I would have told you a sponsored skateboarder because I was a sponsored skateboarder competing in the days when Tony Hawk was just starting out. So only a few of us knew who he was at those days. There was no video game or out named after him. But um, I was also a surfer and I continue snowboarding for the last 32 years I've been snowboarding and it is the thing that I do and keeps me, uh, everyone needs something to keep excited about. That's what it is. No, I'm a snowboarder too. So I totally get your oh, excitement awesome. about the sport. Where, where was your favorite place? Zoe, where's your a favorite mountain? Yes. Uh, so far, I, I love Utah. Um, I love uh, like Salt Lake City, um, so a park, like Park City area. Um, and I, I really want to go to Japan or like Europe this year. What is your favorite? So like I, I got invited once by a friend to do a snow cat snowboarding, which was in um it's in Colorado, of course. And it was um it was amazing because like they would just reach snow cat would drive you up to a mountain where there's no trails and just drop you off and pick you up down the bottom. Um and like I, I will never forget that. That's what I still dream about. <laughs> <laughs> That's I that sounds amazing. Thank you so much again, Gary, for taking the time and sit down with us. We really enjoyed the session and uh, we look forward to see the future world on Quark Real Build Us. Awesome. Thank you, Zoe, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where we'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host, Zoe.